The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 10, 30, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. So at this stage in, in our life, Rebecca and I, we have a, a small children. I have a six-year-old, I have a four-year-old, and a 10-month-old. And uh, we are right now training our kids, our older two, how to ride um, a bicycle. And as we're teaching them how to ride a bike, it's, it takes some time to learn it. And even though the mechanics of riding a bike, the, of, of pedaling and cycling your feet, that's not complicated. And turning the, the, the uh, handlebars is not complicated. But what it takes when it comes to riding a bike comes down to confidence. I mean, you just have to be kind of in there and kind of committed in the confidence of riding your bike. And so I learned this the hard way. Um, I had a bad experience myself riding a bike. It's one thing to teach it. But I had a bad experience myself riding a bike about two years ago um, before our youngest was born. We took um, Scarlett and Nehemiah, our son and daughter, we took them to Shark Valley. Anyone ever been to Shark Valley here? Down, yeah, a bunch of us have been down to Shark Valley. Shark Valley is like a preserve um, down in South Miami, and there is like this eight-mile loop of, it's a road, and it's about eight miles. You can take a tram, you can walk it, or you can bring a bike or rent a bicycle. And the thing that Shark Valley is probably most known for is Shark Valley is known for a particular animal that is in abundance there. Obviously, alligators. I don't know why it was called Shark Valley, not Alligator Valley, but it's known for its alligators. And as you're riding along this road, all along the side, there's this canal. And at certain times of year, especially when it's, um, it's colder out, they come out to sun themselves. And I mean, they're, the crazy thing is they're like right there as you're riding your bike. They're not like over there. They're like right here. Like if you get too close... Those aren't speed bumps you're riding over on your bike, okay? So just so you've been warned. They're like right there. And so um, we were riding along. We went a, a certain distance and we started coming back. And on our way back, Rebecca was a little farther ahead. And she had on the back like a uh, kid seat, she had Scarlett. And I had Nehemiah on the back of my bike. And uh, Rebecca stops up there and she's like, hey, I found some alligators. They're right here in the canal. And so I ride up to her. And as I'm approaching it dawns on me that this would be a bad time to like fall because if like I fell into the canal, okay, like it's infested with alligators, like that's a terrible thing. And so then that like shook my confidence and so like I'm coming up and like I swerve away from the canal too hard and then I swerve back at it and I just dump the bike over into the grass right at the edge of the alligator infested water. And did I mention my son who was two? I don't know if I mentioned that, was on the back. Like I almost like hurdle him into the canal and my uh, wife has to come and he's crying, okay, and I'm pretty embarrassed. My wife's bailing me out now and I think he's still my son. I don't think he trusts me to this day after that moment, all right? But I, I lost my confidence and part of the, the issue that I lost my confidence, I traced this all back. I rode my bike all the time when I was a kid, but I traced it back to when I was in college and my, my cousin, who also attended the same college, she was a couple years older than me, and she had a car. I didn't have a car on the campus, so she gave me her bike. And so I could kind of get around campus. I'm like, oh, that's so nice to, for her to give me this bike. And I, I was really appreciative until I rode it. And I realized she gave me a broken bike. <laughs> so what would happen is I would ride this bike along, and the way it would work, there's something broken on that middle gear. It was stripped or broken. And whenever you'd start coasting, 
the chain would pop off. So I would pedal like on my way to class and all of a sudden I'd coast for a second, the chain would pop off and when I started pedaling again, there's no forward propulsion. So I could pedal as fast as I wanted and I'm just slowing down and eventually I would just topple over, okay? And the thing is about a bike, a bike as a piece of machinery is fairly well reduced. There's not a lot of extras on that piece of machinery. But there is one piece that is absolutely essential. It's that middle gear. If that part is broken, you can actually get by without other parts of the bike. But if that part is broken or missing, it ceases to be a bike. It, everything breaks down after that. There's one central component that you absolutely have to have. And there's one central component in our lives that is absolutely fundamental. Absolutely fundamental that we have to have in every sector of our life. If we don't have this one central piece, and we can try to have life without it, we can try and run it without this central piece in our life, but if we don't have that central piece, life will start to break down. And so what we're going to look at a text today where this particular text, this shows us what that central piece is to, that we have to have right there. If we don't have that, um, things break down. I want us to look at this so that we can add that back into our life and ensure that it's in every part of our life. Open with me to Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. Uh, we are going to actually look at verses 17 and 18 today. Last week, we looked at verses 16, or 15 and 16. But what I want to do to begin is I want to read through all of this section we're looking at for these three weeks. Uh, we're going to read from 15 through 20, and I want you to hear this whole passage. And um, what, I, what we're going to do is there's a, a tradition, it's an old tradition that we do sometimes that is to honor the fact of what we believe as a church. We believe that this, the Bible, is from God, that this is from God to us. He inspired human writers to leave us this word. So these are God's words. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to just ask you in honor of that and kind of as a physical reminder of that is, would you stand with me? Would you take a moment? Would you stand? We're going to read through this text together in kind of honor of what this is that we're reading. Let's stand together. Here's what it says. He is the image of the invisible God. This is speaking about Jesus. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You may be seated. What's so beautiful about this text is this expands our mind about who the person of Jesus is. And, the, and by expanding our mind, the purpose for that is not just simply for more knowledge. The purpose of this is for our own transformation, to understand who Jesus is so that if anything in our life does not reflect that reality, that we are under the power of the Holy Spirit, we transform that before him. And so we're going to look back through this passage because it's really a beautiful passage. We're going to look back at, at verse 17. Here's what it says. And he is 
before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now this, this particular verse, verse 17, is saying two specific things. Jesus is before all things is the first one. And by saying that Jesus is before all things, it's not just talking like as far as a position, like he is over all things. It's saying, it'll say that somewhere else in this text. But it's saying before all things, specifically as far as like um, the order. He is the first. He is before everything else. This is on a theological level speaking about the pre-existence of Jesus Christ. He existed before anything existed. In other words, as it says in other parts of this passage, it's speaking about the divinity of Christ. Jesus Christ was not just a human teacher, according to the Bible. Jesus Christ is God. And as God, he existed before anything was created. He is not a creature. He's not something that God created. He is God, and he is before anything. Even time, even before time existed, there was God. There was Jesus Christ. And so when he was here on this planet as a human, as a man, it was God entering into his creation, entering into time, entering into this planet, and it was God in human form. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. Jesus Christ is pre-existent. There was no time when Jesus Christ came into being. He is pre-existent. He is God. The power of that is when you add that then to the very next statement, it says he is before all things, and then it says, and in him all things hold together. In other words, he is not just the creator of all, he's sustaining all of it. Now this is a particular to what the Bible teaches about God because there, is, there are many who take a different take on how God created the universe. So there is a, a view that's called deism. And the view of deism is basically that whatever created the universe, whatever intelligent design is behind the universe, it wound up the universe and let it go. So I want you to imagine like a child's wind-up toy. So I want you to imagine like a music box that you wind up and then you set it down and it just plays music by itself. Or I want you to imagine like a, a little car that maybe it's got a key in the back and you wind up the back of the car and then you set it down and it zooms off by itself. There are some that have believed historically in what's called deism, that there is a creator of some kind wound up the universe that all the systems in motion uh, the law of, of laws of thermodynamics and photosynthesis and all of the things that keep planets in orbit and keep uh, the animal life and plant life reproducing itself and just set all these systems in motion, kind of like winding up the universe and let it go. And so whether or not that God is a personal God or impersonal God, who knows? Whether or not he knows what's happening in the universe or not, maybe he's off starting another universe. Whether or not he, I mean, knows what's happening in your life, who knows? He just wound it up and let it go. That's deism. But that runs contrary to what the Bible is saying. It's saying God created the universe and is actively holding it together. He's actively sustaining it. He's actively keeping planets in motion. He's actively, God is keeping electrons circling nuclei. That's what this is saying. But it's saying Jesus is the creator and Jesus is the sustainer of the universe. Now let that just roll around in your brain for a second because that gives a whole nother lens 
through which to see, like, I mean, imagine, think about some of his miracles. I mean, the idea, if Jesus is the one, when he's walking here on earth, the ground that he's walking on is ground that he's sustaining to exist. That means that Jesus, when he turns water to wine, I mean, that doesn't seem like such a big deal then because he was holding the molecules together to keep it as water and then just turned it to wine molecules. The disciples saw him calm the storm. Remember, there's a huge storm rushing on the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus says, peace be still, and the storm just stopped. And the disciples said, who is this guy that the wind and the waves obey him? And that's true, but understand that to its fullness. It's not just that the wind and the waves were doing their thing, and then all of a sudden, like, whoa, okay, if Jesus says stop, we'll stop. Jesus was keeping the wind rushing through the Sea of Galilee, and then told it to stop. That means that when he heals the sick woman, and he heals the lame man, and the blind man, and the paralyzed man, and the sick little girl, and all of the people that he healed, I mean, when he's doing that, that means that Jesus, of course he can do that. He's holding the molecules of their bodies together. Jesus is the creator, and he's the sustainer. Listen to what it says in Hebrews Chapter 1, uh, verse 3, listen to this. This is not just in Colossians. This is a consistent teaching throughout the Bible. It's talking about Jesus here. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe. Look at this. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the one. He's not just the creator. He's not just the preexistent one. Jesus is the one sustaining everything. I mean, that is a massive claim about this person, Jesus, the creator and the sustainer. But look at what else it says. Let's go to verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Several things it says here, and where Paul goes next, he's the author of Colossians, where Paul goes next is he says, okay, Jesus is the preexistent one, he's God, he's the creator, he is also the sustainer of everything, and then he says, he is the head of the church, us, we're the church. We're the church when we gather here together, we're the church when we gather into small groups, we're still functioning as the church in our homes. We're the church when we are scattered throughout the city in our friend groups and neighborhoods and workplaces. We operate as the church. And our number one point, the whole purpose of us as a church is to honor the head of the church, Jesus Christ. So maybe you're here and uh, maybe you've been, maybe this is the first time you're joining us online or maybe you've been coming here to our church for the last few weeks and, uh, or maybe this is your first time here and you're asking, okay, is this the right church? Or maybe you're in a journey of finding the right church. And if that's, if that's your question, then what is the litmus test for a church? Like what makes a church good? And according to this, what makes a church, what, what is the litmus test for a church is does that church faithfully lift up the name of Jesus? That is the litmus test for a church. So in other words, when we gather together, most important, do we lift up Jesus? In our small groups, do we lift up Jesus? In our homes, do we lift up Jesus? When we're out in, in our workplaces, do we lift up Jesus? The purpose of us as a church, the litmus test, is do we lift up Jesus? So 
often we, we hold up a church differently. We hold up based on what we want and our preferences. And does that church align to our preferences? When we go to small group, we, you know, we, maybe we leave. If you leave your small group and you're like, man, did I like the discussion? Did, is that a topic that I'm interested in? Or did I get to share what I wanted to share? Man, how did I, how did I come across when I shared that? Or, you know what, I, I didn't really like the salsa we had this week. I like that other salsa that that one person brings. You know, like, and we are analyzing you know, our experience based on did, do we like it? That's not what it's about. It's did we, as a small group, lift up the name of Jesus? When we come and gather here together, so often we leave and say, hey, what did you think? Did you, did you enjoy it? And so often what we do is, uh, is we say, well, okay, I, I didn't really, I wish we'd talk more about these subjects, or I wish that we'd talk more about these passages, or I wish we'd sing these particular songs, or I wish we'd sing the songs in this style, or I wish we'd do it this way. But honestly, that's not really, that's not what it's about. He's the head of the church. So our faithfulness then as a church is did we faithfully lift up the person of Jesus? That's us collectively, but how about us individually when we gather? When we gather together uh, like this, what's the litmus test of whether or not I've been faithful as a participant of the church? Because often I'll sit back, like let's just say, for example, um, in, in the singing time, I'll sit back and so often we can say, well, I just don't really feel like singing today. Or I'll sing if it's the song that I like. Or, you know, I, I'll sing if it's, if it's this. Or I don't like singing because, man, you've never heard my voice. I mean, no one wants to hear that kind of singing, okay? Or, you know, and I, I like singing. I'm musical, and so I love to sing, so I want to sing. You know, it's not really about any of that. Why do we sing? We sing to bring the honor that is due the one who's actively holding our vocal cords together. That's why we sing. Well, what this is saying is he is the, the creator and the sustainer and he is the head of the church and then it says he's the firstborn from the dead. He's the firstborn from the dead. And it's referring to his resurrection. You know, the power of, you know, Jesus was crucified on the cross and then he rose again from the dead and the power of him rising from the dead is not just a victory for Jesus, it's not just like, oh, you thought you could hold me back, but I even defeated death. I'm back. And it is that. You can't defeat Jesus. But there's more because he says he's the firstborn from the dead, which means if he's the first one, that means there's going to be others. So that victory when he rose from the dead, that's a victory for you. I don't know if you uh, were here a couple weeks ago, uh, a couple dozen people got baptized and what happens is they're lowered under the water and they're raised back up. That is a symbolic burial. They are going down under the water and coming back up. Why? Because they are saying, they're declaring publicly they have put their faith in Jesus. That means their old life, their old sin, that means that their guilt and their shame, all of that, all of their sin has died and been buried with Jesus and they have been risen through his resurrection. They are a new creation. They are born again. And so they declare that. We declare that. We were commanded by Jesus to do that as believers, to declare that his death and resurrection is a victory for us. But not just for us, and we'll talk about this more next week. That is a victory for all of creation. It's a hint at the end game when one day all of creation found victory in the resurrection of Jesus. All of creation will one day be redeemed, recreated, resurrected, 
And in the meantime, we're working towards that. We want to see that redemption and resurrection in our lives. We want to see that in our families. We want to see that in our church. We want to see that in our families. We want to see that in our city and in our nation and in our world. We want to see that resurrecting power working through our city. He's the firstborn from the dead. And then it says that in everything, he might be preeminent. That in everything, he might be preeminent. He's the first. He's over all. He's the one that is above everything else. In other words, there is nothing that is more important than Jesus. Nothing that's more, more glorious than Jesus. That, that's, what this, that's what this text is saying. There's nothing that's a greater priority than Jesus. There's nothing that deserves more honor and praise and worship than Jesus. He is preeminent over all. Now, that might be something we can come to church and just kind of nod and say, yeah, okay, of course. You know, Jesus is, is, you know, the, he's the one, you know, of course. But honestly, that is not a popular opinion in our modern generation. You know, um, statistics on South Florida would say 77% of Christians would self-identify, excuse me, 77% of citizens here in South Florida, 77% of Dade and Broward County, the population, 77% would self-identify as a Christian. 77% of South Florida would say, yeah, I'm a Christian. But only three to 4% when asked more in depth about what they believe have a belief system, only three to 4% consistent with the very basics of what the Bible says about Jesus. And so what that means is you might be here and say, yeah, of course I'm a Christian. You might be watching online saying, yeah, I'm a Christian. But I want you just to stop and pause and ask yourself about what this is saying. It's saying Jesus is preeminent over all. He's God in the flesh, the creator, the sustainer. That has serious implications for our lives. You know, the prevailing view of today in our generation is that Jesus was, well, no, I mean, Jesus is a good teacher. But the prevailing view of the day is, okay, but don't get all excited. I mean, once you say it's Jesus and nobody else, once you say that Jesus is the one, once you say that Jesus is preeminent, you're kind of excluding everyone else. That's, very, that's being very exclusive. In fact, that's a, a type of uh, religion called exclusivism. If you're saying Jesus is the one and, and, and there's nobody else, that's a, exclusivism. In our society, what we like is we like inclusivism. We, what we like and what just rings true in our modern ears is, you know what, can't it just be that everyone's, you know, can find their own truth and we'll just kind of respect everyone's beliefs? I mean, it, wouldn't it be better just to be inclusive? Say, hey, I, you're not wrong. I'm not wrong. If you want to believe that, that's fine. If I want to believe that, let's just be inclusive and respecting of everybody. Let's just be an inclusivist. And so if someone in our culture that's being very inclusive, the moment they hear something like what the scripture is saying, that Jesus is preeminent overall, they're like, whoa, no, you don't, don't go around saying that. That's being exclusivist. We've got to be accepting of, of everyone. We've got to be inclusivists. But here's the problem. And I want to appeal to those of you who you know, are, are more logical, rational thinkers, that you kind of stand on that logical rationale. Because if, if that's where you're at, I want to push the logic of inclusivism because it breaks down. Inclusivism self-consumes. Why? Because the moment you say, no, you can't believe that, what is the inclusivist doing? The inclusivist is saying, let's include everyone 
accept exclusivists. The moment you say, hey, you can have your own religion um, if you want, but the better way to go is to accept all religions, okay? So don't push your religion on me. You should accept all religions. And the problem that they might not be seeing is that that itself is a religion that they're pushing on you. And so inclusivism sounds nice and it may even sound right, but that is not the path to love and respect for each other. In fact, inclusivism is kind of a myth. You cannot be purely inclusivist. And so what we have to do is, is look at what the scripture, what we have to do is, is look here and at this source say, what is the scripture saying? Because one thing is for, true, for sure, Jesus did not give us the ability to say that he was just a good teacher. We don't really have the ability to say that about Jesus. Why? Well, look at what he said. I don't want to draw your attention to John chapter 8. Um, Jesus is in the temple and he's teaching about with authority about the history of Israel, and he's talking about Abraham, and they say, who do you think you are, Jesus? They say, you're not even 50 years old, and yet you're talking with all this authority, and I want you to see what Jesus said. He said in John 8, 58, he says, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now you might be saying, okay, what's with Jesus' grammar there? Before Abraham was, I am? Like, why isn't he saying before Abraham was, I was? Or something like that. Like, what, what's with that? Well, Jesus is making a point. When he says, I am, he's uttering the sacred name of Almighty God. When Moses, a uh, thousand years earlier, a couple thousand years earlier, was about to go back to Pharaoh and, and on, by God's command, he's going to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go out of slavery. Moses said, what shall, who should I tell them has sent me? And God says, tell them I am sent you. Tell them my name is Yahweh, I am. See, I am is the sacred name of God. Whole generations of uh, Jewish people did not believe you could even utter the name Yahweh because it was so sacred. And Jesus here says, before Abraham was, I am. Do you see what Jesus is claiming about himself? He existed before Abraham. Jesus is saying, I am pre-existent. Jesus is saying that he is God, that he is the great I am. You say, are you sure that he meant all that in that one little statement? Well, his hearers sure knew what he meant because they picked up stones to stone him to death for blasphemy. Look at what Jesus claimed. Listen to this. Here's another I am statement of Jesus. Here's what he says. This is in John 14. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Talk about an exclusivist statement. He says the only way to get to God, the only way to get to the Father is through me. He says, I am the way. He says, in other words, you can't just go and find your own way you want to live. He says, I am the way. He says, you, you can't go and just look inside and find your own truth. And even though our, our culture might say, you know, hey, everyone just, you find your own truth. You do your own truth. Just look inside. What feels right to you? You find your own truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. I am it. It's not for people to find on their own. Jesus' words, he said, I am the way. I am the truth. And then he said, I am the life. Life is not something that we don't go and just build our own life and create and architect our own life and build our own dreams and make our lives happen. Jesus says, I am the life. I am your life. 
Jesus is saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He's saying, I am the centerpiece that goes in your life. If you take that out, things start to malfunction. Why? Jesus is not only preexistent, he's the sustainer. And then how about this statement in Revelation? What did Jesus say? He put it like this. He says, I am the first and the last. I'm the beginning, I'm the end, I'm everything in the middle. I am the first and the last. I am the preeminent one. So that leaves us in a position, we don't have the luxury. If you look at Jesus' teachings, we don't have the ability to say he was just a good teacher because if he was just a teacher, look what he said. He said he was God. He said he was preexistent. He said it was the exclusive way. He said he was preeminent over everything else, the first and last. He said, so he's either a lunatic or he's right and he's almighty God in the flesh. See, Jesus himself said that he is the one and the Bible proclaims consistently throughout that Jesus is the one. He is the one who sustains everything. And maybe you're here saying, look, I I just don't know that I like that. I don't know if that's the truth that I want. I I don't know if that's what I want to believe. I want to believe that Jesus is a great teacher. I want to believe that Jesus is one of the ways to heaven. I I want to believe that Jesus has some good things for me, but, but I want to be the center of my life, or I want to decide what's the center of my life. But you would only say that if you don't know Jesus. Because if, if you know Jesus, if you had an encounter of Jesus, if, if who Jesus really is has been revealed to you, then of course you would say, he has to be the one. He has to be the one in my life. He has to be the one in my family. He has to be the only one in my church. He has to be the one whose, whose name is the banner over my city. He has to be the one that is worshipped in my, in my country, that's worshipped in my world. He has to be the one. If you've encountered him, why? Because... Who is this Jesus? What has he done for you? Well, just can you imagine then if he is the sustainer of all? Can you imagine what that means and the implications of that and his suffering? Jesus was arrested on a Thursday night and he was crucified on a Friday. And Thursday night, in the middle of the night, while they're waiting for trial for Jesus, which was a total sham, But while they're waiting for trial, they decided to play a cruel game with Jesus. They bound him, and then they blindfolded him. And then they got around him in a circle, and to mock him and to hurt him, they punched him, bound and blindfolded. No no ability for self-defense. They smacked him, and they beat him, And then they mocked him. They said, Jesus, if you're the Messiah, if you're the great prophet, if you're the chosen one, then then prophesy, Jesus. Tell us who it is that's smacking you right now. Who, Who is it that's punching you? I mean, what kind of cruelty that has to be mustered up in the soul of someone to take pleasure in beating a defenseless person and then mocking them for it? What kind of cruelty does someone have to have? Oh, but Jesus wasn't defenseless. He's the creator and the sustainer. In fact, he warned them before they even arrested him earlier that night that he could call down legions of angels. And so what does that mean that the the sustainer is suffering right now? What that means is that every time that fist came and made contact with his face, every time a, a hand smacked him across the cheek, 
Because he's the sustainer, what that has to mean is he's holding every molecule, every cell together in that fist to let it deliver the blow it's intending to deliver. He's sustaining the fist that brings him suffering to his face. When they crucified him the next day, the crowds walked by him. He was a a spectacle on the cross outside the city in utter rejection. And as they walked by, they look at this man in utter anguish and agony and they mock him. Then the religious leaders mock him. The soldiers mock him. Even some of the thieves that are actually rightfully crucified next to him, they mock him. And here's what they kept saying over and over in different ways. They said, Jesus, you said you're coming here to save us. Look at you. You can't even save yourself. If you are truly the Messiah, come down off that cross, Jesus. You can show us all right now that that's who you are. Just come down from the cross. But do you realize what's holding him onto that cross? That means if he's the suffering sustainer, that means he's holding the nails together that are holding him to the cross. Why would he do that? Why would he undergo such suffering? Because he loves you. That's who he is. That's why he has to be the one. He paid for your sins, washed you clean, rose again so that you can have victory And that resurrecting power can bring victory in your life. So Christian, what is competing with your Savior in your life for preeminence? What is vying for the position that only Jesus can have? What is distracting your thoughts and distracting your mind? What is pulling you away? What is the sector of your life that's saying, okay, I'm going to follow you, Jesus. I'm going to do it your way here and here, but this is the, I'm going to do this my way. You can't take this away from me, Jesus. This part of my life, I'm doing the way I want it to be done. Put Jesus on the throne of that part of your life. Run from that sin. Please, can we as a church pursue repentance in all areas that are not making Jesus preeminent over all? Maybe we can take a moment of just quiet repentance. Would you just bow your head and close your eyes? Can you just open your heart to Jesus and ask him, what is it that's competing for the rightful place in your heart that only he deserves to reign over? Can you open up your heart for that? What is it in your heart? Is there something lurking in your heart that you say, you know what, I, I need to turn from this? What repentance means is that we see our sin the way God sees it. It's not our friend. It's poison. Jesus is the one that holds all things together. If we replace Jesus with anything else, things start to break down. Jesus said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and have it to the fullest. What's that area of your life that the Holy Spirit is pushing on right now that you're putting over Jesus? And, and maybe they're your flesh is is wrestling, saying, oh, no, I can't give that up. No, it's too precious to me. Don't make me give that up, Jesus. Do you, can you see it the way Jesus sees it? 
It's not bringing you life. It's not causing you to thrive. It's not bringing happiness and joy. It is, it is something that's bringing destruction into your life. It's bringing brokenness and disease and decay in your life. And Jesus wants to set you free. He wants to break the chains of the deception that that is something you want in your life. So what is it, please? Could you turn it over to Jesus today? Some of you might be saying, God, in my heart there's pride. In my heart there's selfishness. In, the, in my heart there's arrogance. In my heart there's a refusal to humble myself and confess my sins to other people, to confess that I'm wrong. I just hold on to that. I always have to be right, that I always have to be prideful, and that everything is about me. Can you just see how that self-centeredness is sabotaging your life? Can you see it the way God does? He despises it because it's breaking down the beautiful things he wants for your life. It's sowing poison into your marriage. It's sowing poison into your relationships and your friendships, your relationships with your children. Please turn that over to Jesus. What is he identifying in your heart? Is, has sexual sin slithered its way into your home? Maybe you have the world's view of sexuality and say, okay, lust and pornography and sensuality, I mean, is it really that big of a deal? Well, Jesus said it's stealing and killing and destroying you. Please run from that. Make Jesus the Lord over, the king over your sexuality. Because Why? Because he wants to bring life to you. The world doesn't know what's best for your sexuality. Jesus does. He invented it. And it's one of the most beautiful gifts he wants to give you. So repent today. Go the other direction. Lay that before Jesus. Maybe for some of you today, you're seeing that in your heart there's an idol it's trying to find your sense of validation, your sense of significance by success and accomplishments, by maybe it's a, a certain salary amount, or maybe it's to make money, or maybe it's to have a certain retirement or get to a certain position. That's an idol. And anything we daydream about more than Jesus, anything we think about more than Jesus, anything we plan about more than Jesus, anything we worship more than Jesus is a false God and it will destroy and that God of significance, that God of success, it's robbing you and thieving from you some of the most precious things in your life. It's thieving from you time with this wonderful spouse that he's given you, time from these beautiful children or grandchildren that he's given you. So run from it. Don't let it destroy you anymore. Put Jesus on the throne and find the fulfillment and purpose of giving your life to bear fruit for the kingdom of God. What is God call, calling you to repent of today? Would you just quietly in your heart just offer it up to him? Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be present here in our midst. Jesus, would you convict us of our sins? Would you call us? Search us, O oh God. Know our hearts. Test us and know our ways. Lead us in the path of everlasting. Would you show us how each of us, how we need to repent? God, we're not going to say that anyone here is, is sinless, that's a denial of the gospel. We're not any one of us going to say that we mature past the need to repent. So every one of us, we humble ourselves to you. Give us, grant us the spirit of repentance. If God is nudging you to repent of something today, then here's what I want to ask you to do. I want you to always remember this is the moment you turned from that sin or those sins. 
And so here's what I want to ask you to do with everyone. If you could just keep your heads bowed, everyone's eyes closed. This is a private moment between you and God. If today God is calling you to repentance, to always remember this day, here's what I want you to do. I just want you to slip your hand in the air right now. Just say, he's calling me to repentance. Amen. Praise God. Amen. Amen. Anyone else you say, I mean, maybe some of you are here saying, man, he's calling me to repent of my unbelief. Today is the day I make Jesus my, my Lord, my Savior. Or maybe you say, I, I'm, I'm repenting of any sin that's in my life. I'm realizing that I have just coddled this sin. I need to see it out. Jesus sees it. I want to turn from it. If that's you, just slip your hand in the air right now. Say, I am repenting today. I'm moving past this. Amen. Praise God. Amen. Lord, would you hear our prayer? We're trying to do business with you, finding brokenness and repentance, turning to you, Jesus. Transform our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.